Before we get started, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in with a special shout out to those who support us on Patreon. We'll give you the link later on at the end of the show for those who want to sign up, but while there is little on-field action, there are still so many stories to share. Keep an eye out at EmergingCricket.com and our various social channels and make sure to leave us a five-star rating and if you can, a review wherever you are listening to the show. On today's podcast, we catch up with some more cricket news and we speak to T20 World Cup Media and Communications Manager and EC Patron, Max Abbott. Enjoy. Thank you for joining us again for the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick and with me are the EC Pod co-hosts. First, the man known as Copernicus Cricket on Twitter, Nick Skinner. Nick, how are you? I'm alright, Bez. Just uh, wolfed down some dinner while uh, we're getting ready for the pod. Uh, been reading some of PDP's book, actually. Um, just read the story of poor old Lotaro Musiani from Ar- oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Argentina. Flew... You know, don't cry for me. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. Flew, uh, yeah, flew sixteen hours or something, and and then got run out. I think first ball and didn't play any further part in the trials. Was, <laughs> poor guy. That that was heartbreaking. I felt I felt for the for the poor lad. Glad you're enjoying that book, though. Personally, yeah, I, I've enjoyed it as well. Glad to hear you're traveling okay, Nicholas. Uh, to our third member of the usual emerging cricket podcast team, Tim Cutler. Tim, how's things? Well, I don't know. Still in third place. I don't know what I need to do to get you <laughs> asking me about my day and how things are going. I don't know. I'm just feeling wronged. Oh. But um, I'm good. Um, continue to work working hard here still working from home talking about maybe allowed to be going back to the office next month but um yeah otherwise good good to see some some more cricket being announced and some being able to watch boys there's plenty of cricket to talk about at least cricket news from from a number of different countries and i think we're all glad to to say that that's the case because we are waiting for some more cricket to come back we've seen cricket of course in vanuatu over the last couple of weekends as well as uh taiwan but i first want to bring up some news coming out of the usa and some more shuffles in the back room there. They have a new men's coach in Jagadish Arun Kumar uh, comes in. He's an ex-Ranji Trophy player. Uh, we've seen also Jamie Lloyd, who's done some work, uh, I believe, in the data analysis part of the men's national team. He's actually taken up a role, the first ever USA development manager, which I think is, is a great move. A couple of other positions moving around. Uh, Richard Doan has, has finally stepped into the role officially, or at least we got official word of that from USA Cricket. Tim, as someone who has worked in, you know, these areas of a national cricket setup, how do you see these appointments playing out for the USA? You know, we look at Jamie Lloyd as a development manager and we know that there's quite a, a far-reaching area of the USA that needs to be covered in terms of development, plenty of leagues around the country. How beneficial will that be and how do you assess the rest of the, the setup there in the USA at the moment? Well, one key bit of news there was that they decided not to go ahead with a development officer, which will mean that Jamie uh, is running a bit of a one-man band there. He's filled almost every other role with USA Cricket beforehand. Kiwi by birth has spent a lot of time in the US. So he sounds like he's sort of well-rounded experience-wise. And as you mentioned, he was there as the team analyst in, in Namibia. That's where I think we all met, met him for the first time. Um, the thing for me with USA Cricket at the moment is the kind of the order of operations and how these have been hired with coaches being hired before cricket directors and, and, and whatnot. And it gets me worried that the line of reporting won't be uh, your usual coach reporting to director of cricket reporting to CEO, reporting to board, and there might just be too many cooks around 
around to spoil the broth, so to speak, when it comes to the cricket. So I just hope that they get their priorities right, and that includes starting from the bottom and going up, but also getting everything right at the top end around coaching, director of cricket, and the new T20 league. Yeah, I agree with that, Tim. I think just looking at the way US cricket is set up, you did touch on this. You know, they've they've got hundreds of leagues around the country, but most of them are not sort of talking to each other. So I think, I guess, under better circumstances where there, you know, there is money coming in and and cricket being played, they could look at some sort of, you know, an outreach kind of position, just someone to try and build bridges with all these leagues. You know, there's so many players in America, and if they could all be playing you know towards the same thing and having a a sort of structured system where it all feeds into each other i I think that they really would be a force to be reckoned with but you know that's sort of been their achilles heel for for a long time is that in the past often they haven't been able to get the best 11 guys on the field because you know five of the best 11 guys are playing in non-recognized leagues that want nothing to do with the board so so i think if they can address that they'll they'll make a huge step forward and they've also had troubles and and again to to talk about peter delapena's book guys like Akeem Dodson and and others around to show probably the most ability out of everyone but have to take careers in in other lines of work or as you said Nick just don't see eye to eye with the administration for for whatever reason Uh, we've seen in the last 12 months at USA have rolled out some sort of central contract system where players are being paid a a yearly salary and that will be beneficial at the top end but again yeah Tim you point out really well with the, the development officer v manager role it'll be interesting to see how they really galvanize every single league and and board around the country to to unify because there are so many leagues around the country with with so much untapped talent it's just a case of getting eyes on on a lot of these players at the moment because it just seems as if a lot of the players out there who are good enough either just not being seen or as you said nick they just they don't align with with the current governing body so hopefully a lot of that can be rectified and we see some positive news in the usa moving forward moving on to the czech republic and uh, some somber news in fact with scott page uh, unfortunately passing away. He was a stalwart of, of Czech cricket who did a number of roles in the European country. That was some some sad news to hear of from the people in the Czech Republic and those uh, involved in Czech Republic cricket. But to, to Czech cricket, they're immensely proud of hopefully bringing league action back they were one of the best responders to the coronavirus pandemic uh it is looking like it will go ahead at this stage hopefully we'll get to see this uh, as a live stream nick yeah i'm keen um some top tier cricket team names there as well uh just thinking the visigoths or the barbarian vandals you know how can you say no to that looking forward to that hopefully we will see that on a live stream uh some more cricket just to watch and hopefully some news stories a la Vanuatu that came out when they had what was it 400,000 total streams there Uh, and speaking of Vanuatu they are planning on some more cricket with the T10 format hopefully being rolled out again being streamed Shane Dietz being proactive eyeballs on the country more exposure to emerging cricket immense positives here and some cricket to watch Tim absolutely and like we talked about last week what would happen from here you know, I think the key thing for Vanuatu is to take the short-term view and, and definitely get their play and live action out there. And like you said, get the eyeballs on, on the country, but also to make sure that there's some legacy here around their um, footage and whatnot that they can they keep forever. It's 
going to be crucial if they can get stuff out of this that they can use into the future and help put together presentations for sponsors and to have little sizzle videos on the various social channels to engage well first and foremost the local population to play but then everybody beyond that i just i just hope they're looking at this quite holistically and not just uh chasing the dollars that i'm sure is being thrown around at the moment for any sort of live sporting action i think there's a real opportunity here for for vanuatu to put a big tick in their development boxes to achieve but i'm looking forward to watching the, the next weekend of action once they once they get it going yeah and the only i guess just a bit of a question mark for me is in the announcement it seems like they're replacing their 40 over league with the t10 format which i i guess is done for um you know increasing the the viewer interest and and whatnot but i'm just i'm a bit you know, I'm not sold on T10 as a format. Um, I think once you get down to that many players and, and such a short amount of time, the value of a wicket is so low that it just distorts the game. And, you know, 10 overs is, is almost um, at the point where you'd start looking at less players on the team. I don't know. So just in terms of how that helps Vanuatu's cricket, we know that the, the Challenge League is sort of their, their main um, assignment at the moment, the, the 50 over stuff. So if they've, they've gone down to, you know, 10 overs each, I'm not sure how much that's going to help them. Yeah, I see where you're coming from from but you know i think they've they've had a, a nibble on the uh on the rod or i should say on, on the bait and getting t10 in will get more cricketers and get more eyeballs on it yeah i'm with you in terms of the type of cricket that's being played but hopefully once all the cricket gets going again they can fall back to their their longer format cricket but this is a chance of getting more players in vanuatu involved as well and, and ultimately is is that not part of the goal here as well to get more experience to their players yeah i'm with you i can understand it if they came out and said there was going to be a 40 over league, would they have had uh, less interest? I, I don't know the answer to that. And given the push with, with universal status and the, and the focus of T20 cricket with World Cup qualifying, back-to-back T20 World Cups with all that pending in, in the current situation, I think it's fine to focus on the, on the shortest format. But yeah, to go all the way down to T10 will be an interesting move. And the value of, of a player's wicket is crucial. Even at the, the 2020 level or the 2020 format, will be interesting to see how that pans out in Vanuatu and how they go about things. Some more news tidbits before we chat to Max Abbott. First, the Taiwan and the Taipei T10. The FCC Formosans and the TCA Indians have already booked their spot into finals day in two weekends' time, but the rest of the teams will battle it out in a playoff weekend this weekend. All of those matches will be streamed on YouTube, so look out for them. And to Russia, where some pleasing news has come out from there. Cricket finally recognized as a sport by the Russian Sports Ministry, which will enable some funding and support for Cricket Russia. It comes almost a year after cricket was thrown out as a sport by the Russian Sports Ministry, just a day after the 2019 Cricket World Cup final. That story per the European Cricket Network. For now, though, we have another guest appearance on the podcast this week. We caught up with T20 World Cup Media and Communications Manager and EC patron Max Abbott to discuss how he and his team promote the game, as well as stories from filling the MCG and Thailand's campaign at the tournament. Well, here on the Emerging Cricket Podcast, we are delighted to welcome T20 World Cup Media and Communications Manager and EC patron, Max Abbott. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, gents. Uh, long-time admirer of all your work, so uh, congratulations on it. Well, we didn't get to give him a... Mm, um, but you know we, we can probably dub that in at the background and and 
you know, talk about him being a, a patron. That was basically me um, standing over him uh, in Brisbane just before the uh, T20 World Cup. That's a touch unfair to you. I mean, yes, that's, that is true. But um, <laughs> at the same time, it was always my intention to become one. So I just needed that final push to do it um, and get it done. So and I, I'm, I'm a happy supporter. I have no regrets. I'll, I'll continue for now. Um, subject to how this interview goes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully able to get plenty of content out of you tonight. Uh, given the, the situation with, that we're all in with, with COVID, how are you coping? What, what's your situation at the moment? Where are you based? How are you living? At- yeah, well, I'm in, uh, I'm in Melbourne, um, which is where the local organising committee for the T20 World Cup is based. And I have to say, I mean, obviously the timing for us um, given that you know we had the final on March 8th for the women's and the next weekend the F1 was cancelled. So we were literally in by the skin of our teeth. And by that point, at the end of the women's, I was at a stage mentally where I was more than happy to stay home and do nothing for a little while. So probably from a timing point of view, um, I've been quite lucky and been quite happy just to spend a bit of time at home not doing too much um, other than a bit of a few post-event reports and just quietly sort of tap those along. So we've lost, been, um, you know, pretty horrible to see how the rest of the sporting industry has been ripped apart, especially colleagues of mine that work in the media um, from my time in Fox Sports previously. It's been quite hard to see, you know, the difficulties being faced there. But, you know, probably on a personal level, I've just been, uh, I don't have the best home office set up. I pretty much work out of my bedroom, which is very dangerous. And if you ever have that feeling when you're at work, uh, I wish I could go onto the desk and just have a sleep it's sort of um suddenly uh you know when you're in the situation it's all too tempting really but um probably ready to get out and about back to the office soon and start start getting out there i think which hopefully fingers crossed won't be too far away you had eighty six thousand people show up to the mcg for the women's final with australia defeating india um that was the culmination of, of what seemed to be a very good effort from you guys from the tournament organizers and from everyone that really played a part in all of that in a way quite lucky you know weather threatened at times during that tournament as well um how satisfying was it to to, to get you know a complete tournament with a final with eighty thousand over eighty thousand people there to just see that come to fruition yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. And look, we set off you know, in this ambition. It was crazy. Everyone said, you know, you'll never be able to do it. And we, in all honesty, when we planned for it, we never assumed ever that Australia would be there. Of course, we knew that it, you know, would give us a significant advantage to have the hosts of the World Cup in the final or something like that. But we just wanted to put ourselves in the best position possible that if on that day the cards fell in our favour that we could do something special. And I think had we not had taken that sort of gamble of being so ambitious, you know, a year out, I don't think we would have achieved what we did. So we sort of, whilst we certainly left the door open, if had it been a complete washout at the SCG, I mean, who knows what it might have looked like instead on the Sunday. But I think all the hard work that we'd put in, whilst there was definitely fortune involved. We reaped the rewards because of the, the hard work we put in. And I just think just the whole night was, was just amazing. I think the best story that sort of sums up the sentiment of the crowd, which was the most unique that I've ever experienced in an event, was we actually had a bit of a problem with our ticketing. Uh, we had a bit of a ticketing issue in the, on the day. And um, there were quite significant queues starting to build at the front of the event. We were all getting really worried about, you know, people are going to start getting grumpy. Katy Perry's on at 5.30. They might miss the first song. You know, we're getting very nervous about that. But, we're, you know, checking the Twitter feed and people were just posting going how amazing is this look at how many people are turning look at these scenes for a women's cricket match and it just sort of summed up the positive outlook that everyone walked into that stadium with that they were at something special i think at a lot of other events that we would have gone shame on you icc you know, we would have been coughing this sort of criticism for something like that but everyone in that ground just came in there think you know knowing they were a part of something special so i don't think there'll be another event that i'll experience like it to be honest so it was a very rewarding thing to be part of and very lucky to be able to play a part 
part in it. You mentioned it was there was a lot of effort going back a long time. I think I read it started more than a year out, right? So just talk us through the you know the backstory of that that big project. Yeah, so um, I started in September 2018, and obviously at that time we already knew that the final was going to be on International Women's Day on March 8th, so there was an opportunity, something special. And Nick Hockley, a local organising committee CEO, was a, was a big driver in wanting the ambition to break the world record. And there was a lot of discussion about when should we sort of come out with this sort of ambition? What's the ideal timing? Is it sort of as it's getting closer? Do you try and let people know early bring the sort of sales I suppose forward of that ambition that people know and this decision was made to go quite early with that and I think it was around our fixture launch in Jan which was January 2019 um, we sort of started more publicly going out with that ambition and that became the thing that you know media would talk about about the event a long way out but I think from my point of view and in my role as the media manager it was a it was really difficult for the first 10 11 months of like leading in you know it was a hard sell to get media to get excited about the women's cricket tournament that was a year away it was nine months away there's still in between that there was a women's ashes there was a men's ashes there was a cricket world cup there was a home summer so there's so much other stuff going on that um you know the women's world cup's in a mile away but we basically just kept beating the drum anyway over the course of that period so we mapped out different milestones along the journey so you know you got your one year to go one year to the final we did an event on the mcg and sort of invited our sort of stakeholders in to take them on the journey with us then we start after the Cricket World Cup doing a schools program. There was 200 days to go where we've got different um, sort of 2020 champions, sort of advocates in the community to sort of help spruik the cause. 100 days to go, 50 day trophy tour around Australia, going around talking about the event. So it was a was a huge lead up in that regard and a lot of credit's got to go to the players as well who were fantastic supporters and they you know very difficult position for them to be in to talk about these ambitions when really their focus was on winning the first game or just you know on the performance base so they were great supporters so it was a, a big endeavor and I think the best way to kind of sum it up was we looked at our roles in was to push the snowball to the top of the hill and just gather as much as we could and then pretty much when it came around to February just let it go and um thankfully and see where it sort of goes and thankfully you know it really gathered steam and momentum you know february and march just rewinding a bit i know you have a bit of history with tim and for all our uh, listeners you're wearing your dolphins shirt there for his beloved easts uh so so what's happened in between for you to get to working at the icc i guess what's the you know the trajectory tim, tim is definitely part of the story because um so when I mean, we played together at east cricket club for a long time and um i actually was injured i was playing and out for quite a while with a with a back injury injury and um, Tim was sort of at the time you know involved in the off-field sort of management of the club and there was a bit of change going on at the time and Tim sort of asked me to sort of be involved in that change and as soon as I started getting involved at the local club from a point of view of I suppose administration I actually found that I enjoyed that a lot more than my job at Fox Sports and I was spending a lot more time uh, making phone calls for East Cricket in my voluntary role than perhaps writing stories for Fox as I (laughs) should have been so I sort of realized that that's where my probably passion really was um and then tim somehow again became a part of my uh next step which was um up with, at hong kong cricket and tim very generously offered me to be involved up there which was just an amazing experience and you know certainly relevant to your audience totally opened me up to the world of associate cricket and i think as all of you will attest to once you're in you never leave really and so once you understand the context and the stories and what 
players and administrators go through at that level of cricket. Um, it really does suck you in. And then um, out of that, we had some, you know, we had a good time there for a couple of years and was was lucky enough to sort of meet Nick Hockley and go through a you know fairly rigorous process to when I moved back to Australia to get the job with as a media manager, obviously combining what I'd done with Fox and worked in the media before and um, some sort of cricket administration experience. But, you know, certainly been very lucky with my last couple of roles and two very different ones, I suppose, really. <laughs> so picking up on that, you mentioned your time at Fox Sports and cricket administration and in your role, it's quite creative. You were born into a, a very creative family. Your mother describes it as when you when you were born, when your mum and dad were travelling around with the castanets, it was like a travelling circus. Uh, people would know your mother, Angela, from play school for those watching in Australia and your father Steve Abbott is better known as as Sandman to uh to most people who will be listening and probably people born before Nick and and Bez but um tell me about that life growing up because something that was always impressed me about you is that line between the, the analytical operational but also the creative you know how much are you a product of your upbringing and what was it like growing up in such a, a creative group of people and having people like that around you you know that that crowd of the Flacco and Mikey Robbins and all those guys around yeah well it was just a not for me felt like a normal upbringing obviously but as I got older I probably realized it wasn't so normal because um, I was an only child but probably felt like I grew up with eight younger brothers in a way I mean my dad and a bunch of his friends were probably more immature than I was um, and certainly the focus was um, always on um, having a good time and doing doing what you love so I think yeah traveling around I was never short of attention and it was a very much a performance based childhood where I'd just go from room to room in this traveling circus looking to ever listen to whatever performance I had to give in the room as a three or four year old so as you know Tim I'm not averse to being the center of attention sometimes in a, in a room so um <laughs> we'll get to, well, your chance will come here max don't worry if anyone's thinking about turning off now you're going to hear some great impressions later on but so so stick with us uh so so i think that's where certainly the creative side came and really is from the cricket club i think i go so much to east cricket club that's probably more the analytical side came where i met people involved in the club i didn't have a business bone in my body probably until i was going to the cricket club and came involved with people like yourself and others like tony adams and tim brown all these sort of people we had involved there that so that was sort of the upbringing was totally creative, laid back, just have a good time, do what you like. And then probably subsequent to that, be more involved with people, have a bit more structure and um, business and analytical, analytically minded. So that sort of has been, I suppose, where that balance comes from. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny to talk about the, you know, the famous family and the creative side of things because just this afternoon, I, I was listening to a podcast about uh, Charles Dickens and his kids and he actually packs a couple of them off to Australia because he was uh, very disappointed in them. And, you know, back in the day, that's just what you did with disappointing children you you packed them off to australia what a punishment yeah it, it just gets me thinking about your situation and and growing up with a well-known uh, father and mother because you know dickens kids really struggled with with that and and you know, living in the shadow of their father's fame I, I guess the the sandman steve abbott wasn't quite as well known but you know what was it like to uh, to grow up in that space of, of being you know the, the child of someone famous I was probably a bit embarrassed about it when I was younger, to be honest. Um, maybe I should have done more in that sort of drama. and all. I didn't do that at school because everyone would expect me to do it. So I sort of did that uh, rebellious, um, no, I'm not doing <laughs> drama. So I sort of avoided becoming involved in the performing arts for the reason that I just thought that's what people expected me to do, which is, has no logic to it, really. Um, but always grew up with sport. Dad's a massive cricket fan, so it's not that surprising that I've ended up working in cricket. So he's obviously been hugely supportive of that. 
that. But yeah, I think in the cricket club, it probably, it does probably make an impact. When I first arrived as a 16, 17 year old, most kids would be fairly anonymous. But if dad was at training and some of the older players knew who my dad was, so I was sort of son of Sandy, I suppose, instantly makes you a bit more, I suppose, recognisable around the place and probably earns you credit and respect that you don't deserve necessarily just on the basis of who your dad is. But it probably helped me integrate in with some of the older players who um, found dad particularly amusing so to talk to. So I've got to cut in there because uh, what endeared you was you turning up to your first training session and nicking off the first grade captain, Mark Patterson, a couple of times your first spell to him. Isn't that what really endeared you to everyone? I still think the, um, you know, it was always great having dad around, I suppose. He, he still got, even though I'm not playing there obviously anymore, he's still there up at Waverley Oval every Saturday. I think he's a, it's the one place where he still goes to get his laughs. So is to go up to the cricket crowd on a Saturday. So he's still very much involved in, in helping out up at the club. So I think for him, it was a great place to go and the place he enjoyed to be as well. So yeah, it is, it, it definitely makes it, I think at certain times it probably <laughs> had its advantages. I guess, but also probably made me steer away from what they were doing. So now looking forward to, to what you're doing now and preparing with a T20 World Cup uh, on the men's side as well. Uh, I know this situation that we're all in has kind of thrown everything out a little bit, but what's the day in the life of Max Abbott normally entail, either preparing for a tournament or, say, during a tournament? I imagine those days are quite different. Uh, what are the what are the roles that you undertake? Yeah, so it's a, been a very full-on role in a sense that I look after, I suppose, so just to be clear, I suppose, there's the ICC based out of Dubai and then there's a local organising committee set up which is its own entity, has its own board, but is represented on that board by Cricket Australia and the ICC. So and obviously it's um, you know just to deliver the tournament for the ICC who really more come in, whilst they're very much involved the whole way, they come in at tournament time in particular and are far more hands-on because obviously they have several events throughout the year and it wouldn't be possible for them to three years out from a tournament to start that sort of planning process. So within that local organising committee, I um, look after, I suppose, the cricket media side. So probably it's less um, like a Cricket Australia media manager who might have that more day-to-day taking inquiries about interviews for players. It's less that and more building media opportunities around our probably milestone PR promotional events. So, um, you know, an example of that would be Elise Perry on the trophy tour. We did a, a mural in the laneway with Katie and Elise Perry and it's um, having those relationships the media to maximise the coverage you can get for the event and then also looking after the digital channels so whilst the ICC have a pretty big part in that um, we have a video producer and we produce basically all the kind of content that's a bit more geared towards probably Australian audience and things that are more relevant to our event kind of only so it's both on the media side and then also on the digital planning and execution and then the third one's the trophy tour so I'm the trophy tour man so we have um, had a 40 day domestic tour as I mentioned for the women's so where we go around to all the host cities and do different promotional events and engage with the community and then for the men's obviously depending on what happens we'll have another tour um, around Australia for, for the men's which is a big platform for people to kind of be a part of the event who may not get to matches and also an opportunity just for to develop content in the in the lead up to a tournament so it is pretty varied and that's what I've actually really enjoyed about it, it hasn't been the same every day and does it is a very much an all-rounders hands-on role. Given the situation and uh, the, the pandemic that we're all experiencing, I'm sure that it, it stifled a few of your plans in the lead up to the men's T20 World Cup, which, you know, at this point is still set for the 18th of October, it, its first game um, in, in that first round phase. Yeah, the, there's the tour to, to consider that there's other initiatives that you guys were, were putting forward in the, in the preparation. What were the big things that were affected by the current ongoing situation that we're all experiencing at the moment? 
Yeah, we, we probably haven't been too hugely affected just yet, but we've obviously generally a big part of what we do is engage with different communities, obviously, that take part in the T20 World Cup. So before the women's and also before the men's, we'd be doing the same is going out to different multicultural groups and events where we will go and you know, whether it's taking the trophy or other kind of um, promotional tools, to take players, do clinics or things like that that can I suppose, create more sort of meaningful connections in the community, create that legacy for Cricket Australia after the event, um, that they've got those relationships to be able to leverage for cricket in, in Australia. So obviously we haven't been able to go out and partake in those sorts of activities, and nor do any sort of promotional, I suppose, events in our host cities. So we obviously haven't been able to do that. And I think, you know, just the one thing that sort of strikes about all this is that just how, just how quickly it all sort of changes. I mean, you know, like I mentioned earlier, March 8, we had 86,000. The next week, F1 was cancelled. Since then, we've had, you know, spike in cases, complete lockdown. And now we're talking about some easing of some of these restrictions not being far away in Australia. So, and that's in the space of what, a month or two, um, not even two months. So it all changes very quickly and hence why at the moment, I guess we're as scheduled now because there is obviously so much unknown and it does just change so quickly. So if we allow you to uh, move your crystal ball to one side and uh, for the future and to look back, over 80,000 people in the MCG was amazing. You know, you didn't get to the world record that you're looking for, but it's still an amazing achievement. Can you talk more about some of those those digital headline figures? You know, I'm, I'm sure our listeners are going to want to know more about Thailand, and I think we'll drill you more on that. But I'd just love to hear how many people actually took notice and engaged with what was going on during the World Cup. Yeah, well, I mean, it uh, was 1.2 billion video views across the women's event, which is just a massive number, I think, for context. The FIFA Men's World Cup had 1.25 billion video views. So that just sort of shows naturally since, um, since 2018, the digital world is obviously always expanding but I think when you compare those two events that the Men's World Cup FIFA World Cup is longer there are more matches and just the, the scale of that event it shows that the ICC are actually doing a really good job of leveraging you know those platforms and I think a lot of that comes from the highlights and a really quality delivery of highlights to Facebook and those were particularly successful and we obviously know the the, um, the popularity of the game in the subcontinent obviously makes up a big part of that but I just think when looking at a, at a women's event you know that's just so completely unprecedented um that number um i was i've been trying to almost poke holes in it it was almost unbelievable to me once i once i saw that figure but i think when you stack it up it just shows how big the game's gotten and what a opportunity it is for cricket to be able to now showcase to various partners going forward about the value the commercial value of women's cricket and the potential it's got and that extends to associate cricket as well so drilling down a little bit more, you know, there was only one associate at the the World Cup. Uh, tell us about Thailand and, and their numbers and how that they fared as compared to uh, some of the big sisters at the event. Yeah, well, um, it was I was very pleased to see, as obviously as you know, as an associate, uh, emerging cricket lover, that Thailand were extremely popular in the content we served, and I think a lot of that came down to just the way they carried themselves through the whole event, whole of the event. Such a unique thing. If everyone's first reaction when you say Thailand's in the World Cup, you know, it was complete stunned horror almost uh, amongst the Australian media when that, you sort of first mentioned that proposition to them. But we had 1.2 million 
engagements on their content across the tournament, which means that's not just watching it, that's actually actively liking, commenting on that content. Um, so that's an extremely high number. And there was over 50 million video views on Thailand cricket content through the tournament over a couple of weeks. So um, that's in itself is a big number, but I think more significantly is after the first week of the tournament, it was the highlights of Thailand and West Indies was the second most popular video on all of the ICC channels. So I think that, again, is hopefully a huge value going forward for cricket to showcase that this is the value of some of these emerging cricket teams to ICC events. And it certainly added a really great dimension to the women's event to have that story to tell um, for Thailand. Obviously a shame that we couldn't get that last game completed just to see what might have happened um, at the showground that day. People probably easily forget about the fact that they were very possible that they could have won that game. So what a story that might have been if we'd been able to tell it. But, you know, credit to Thailand, the way they carried themselves when they came out here because I think, you know, you couldn't help but fall in love with the smiles on their faces. Um, I challenge any sports fan to, to not feel sort of endeared to them over the course of the event. Oh, we've talked about it a lot on the pod, just the way that they conduct themselves. I think from the, the time they've learnt the game to the way that they, they played, even in the World Cup, even under pressure, even when things weren't going their way, still smiling, not turning on each other, not sledging the other team, just loving the game. And, and, and I think they are probably the, the heroes of if I know we talk about the spirit of cricket and what that actually means but if we could define it I think it's basically the way that that Thailand plays it what it really sounds don't take this as a leading question and we won't quote <laughs> you make sure you quote him um it really sounds like the the data from your point of view from a, a marketing communications and, and I guess linking to that commercial is that the proofs in the pudding really that the broadening appeal of a, of a world cup is with a Thailand is actually sh- benefiting the ICC with the engagement numbers and really there's an argument there if you had more teams like Thailand you can have even more people engaging yeah I think it's um it'll be interesting to see how the men's tournament how the numbers shape up I mean that might give us a better indication as well because obviously with the with the women's event Thailand I'll be interested to see just because of the kind of cultural significance of Thailand being in the tournament and how unique it was and how authentic it was I think that was really the key to the success of that content they were just completely themselves it wasn't manufactured and um, I think people warmed to that so was it a case of it's Thailand and a different team or was it a case of just simply who they were I'd like to think it's both and hopefully after the for the men's T20 World Cup where I've got a bit of a sample size of you know more teams playing there's a, a better argument to be had from that I mean T20 cricket I'm obviously biased but I think the ICC have done a good job in terms of being a global growth vehicle in the qualification structure for the T20 World Cup and the men's was excellent um, to have a sort of year and a half's worth of qualification matches and the amount of effort that still goes into the coordination of getting all those teams to all those different places to play the games is a big investment for the ICC so I think for the T20 World Cups there's huge potential for the associate countries to become more involved and I think that appears to be the direction that these tournaments are heading in this thing the noises and you guys probably have your ears to the ground better than me the noise seemed pretty positive when it comes to future tournaments around that yeah, I tend to agree, and I think the universal status um, of T20 internationals has, has probably enhanced the growth of, of T20 cricket as a potential vehicle to grow the game in, in developing countries. And yeah, the qualifier last year was great television and, and great to watch, and, and yeah, hopefully, you know, this men's T20 World Cup comes to fruition. Yeah, again, to, to bring it back to, to the emerging nations, 
Thailand at the Women's World Cup were excellent. They brought, you know, something different to the table. I know that they improved as the tournament went on to the point where, you know, where we're all at the, the showground and we thought, you know, barring some rain, that they were a pretty good chance of, of winning that game. I actually remember... They were a shoe-in, Bez. They were a shoe-in. Yeah, they were. They were, they were my lock for the week, <laughs> my- Tim. <laughs> they both make good cases. <laughs> But I, I do remember during that rain delay, the Thai girls had a dance-off. I remember, Max, you actually showed me the video of that. What were some of the other stories of Thailand at that tournament? I know you were exposed and, and you were there for, for basically all of their campaign. And I know that it was very different for them, you know, with the bright lights of a, of a World Cup and them handling media and all the extra attention. How did they take to the to the situation of being at a global tournament? Because it was a new experience for them, but it seemed like they, they handled it quite well. Was well, I think the sort of it showed the journey they went on is um, so they, a couple of the players, including their captain um, Sonaran, came to the MCG with the ICC Development League, and I think it was about August the year before. So a couple of their players came to the MCG, and we did a bit of a shoot with them there, and that was the first time that they'd been to the MCG to come and take a look at that. And it was um, extremely cold. It was God, it must have been about 10, 12 degrees, and they didn't really have proper um, warmth on. And we were there, and I'd work, you know, sort of work the phones to kind of get a crew to come down and cover the fact there was a couple of Thai players here they're going to be here in a few months time for the T20 World Cup and it was sort of an yeah, it was sort of a bit interesting but it was a pretty lukewarm response overall ABC did come down the journal which was great and um, did a story in the evening news that night and I think um, the, the players were so patient down there it was their first time it was freezing cold it was um, you know we did two sets of interviews where we basically asked the same questions because we were doing some stuff for ICC channels and they still just had a big smile on their face this is you know must have been there for an hour and a half almost in the in the cold doing stuff and no complaints and you know there's probably not a lot of other sort of World Cup participants that would have that patience to come and stand in the cold for that long given uh, your time so it was such a sort of pleasure to work with and then fast forward probably a few months and you know I spoke to a few other journal- journalists about you know Thailand coming and this is a story sent in the ABC story to give an example like this is sort of the you know this is a bit of gives you a bit of a guide and was, then there was more appetite and I think AAP and um, a couple of others sort of picked it up and um, did some stories and then come tournament time when they arrived and this story started bouncing some legs I mean I was just getting almost daily inquiries like can we speak to the tie team who's available can we speak to the captain you have to explain well you need to translate there was you know they just came in gun ho we need something on Thailand um, and that result we had there was a, a double page spread in the Herald Sun in Melbourne which was just a full feature on the Thai cricket team and their story and there were just a, that there was also a, a feature that ran in the West Oz in Perth before they played their first match there and I think it was easy during the tournament that's just how the flow was going momentum was going when you actually stop for a moment think about what that is that was the women's Thai cricket team having a double page spread in the Herald Sun in Melbourne one of Australia's biggest newspapers and I just thought for me personally that was such a big highlight to be able to share that story with the sort of sporting community of Australia and I'm sidetracking here a little bit but one of the things that I just loved about working at Hong Kong for a while is once you you're taken on that journey with the stories and realize can't I'm not a believer in comparing emerging cricket full member cricket even women's cricket they're sort of all brilliant for their own reasons and Thailand just have 
no, that is not replicated in any full member. You will never have a story like that to be able to share. And that just creates such great diversity and storytelling for the game. So I think that's to be able to share that and have that as a dimension for our tournament just gave us something totally different to talk about outside of, you know, the big three for the Australian players, which is what the media are interested in most of the time. Um, and maybe a smattering of other players from countries. It just really helped us diversify the narrative. And I think Thailand want to build on this, you know, after the first, you know, big dance to use the the tagline that, that you guys had for that tournament. How do you think this will potentially build the Thai team? I know it's probably a little bit outside your area of expertise that you're involved with now, but, you know, down the track, how do you think that this will improve the game in Thailand and in other emerging countries? I think it will probably follow us in a way a similar track to the men's and some of the emerging nations we've seen there where as perhaps more leagues develop around, you know, in Australia and maybe a WIPL and that kind of stuff, we might be able to see some of these players being able to showcase their skills on the world stage more often in that regard. I, probably, I suppose the big challenge for, for Thailand is going to be building the popularity of the sport domestically. Whilst it's a great story for global cricket to be able to tell, I suppose ultimately what we all really want to see is actually kids in Thailand feeling inspired to pick up bats and balls because that's going to sort of sustain um, long-term development of the game there. So that's probably going to be their biggest challenge. And Tim, Tim and I know this very well from Hong Kong. That is a big long-term challenge to undertake. Um, and I don't know, you guys, again, would know better than me. Was there much reception to the sort of Thai story domestically there following the tournament? Obviously, if they had a win, that would have significantly helped, I would have thought. It's tough It's tough to say. I think, yeah, had they, they got that win against Pakistan, it might have helped. But, you know, speaking to, to Nishad uh, Rego, who was their media manager for the tournament, he said, yeah, Thailand, you know, at this point, you know, cricket is still very much a boutique sport it's just been a case where they've been able to take almost the same group of girls for for 10 to 12 years to develop them in into cricketers but hopefully he said that you know if there is inspiration in participating at the world cup and seeing the encouraging results hopefully that it will you know inspire the next generation of, of talent that they can they can blood through um, maybe not a whole domestic competition per se but yeah definitely the, the chance to develop a, another generation of, of talent and hopefully it inspires the other countries to see what's possible as well. I mean, in 12 years, to be able to have the rise that they have just sort of shows what's possible and the experience that you, you can give to people in the community. We've seen that with Hong Kong before, some of these smaller nations in particular that can punch above their weight. Um, so hopefully the, the template that Thailand have shown from playing in a World Cup and their meteoric rise from having never played any international cricket to being at a World Cup a dozen years later shows some of the smaller associate nations of what's possible. You know, countries like your Brazil and Indonesia, where they might be able to look at that and say, well, this is actually achievable. Um, and, there's a, and there's a template there to follow. So I think hopefully it's twofold. Hopefully it can spur on Thailand to keep the energy up in their programs and those involved to keep pursuing what, what their goals at the moment. And then also for other countries as well, because I think we do, cricket will only benefit from having more stories to tell like that. Mm. So you've sort of touched on uh, the future and, and that leads into my next question, which is basically, uh, where to next for women's cricket? You know, you, you fill the G, now what? It's a very good question. Well, I think what our sort of ambition was to, I mean, the, the highest crowd for a women's cricket match in Australia before was around 9,000 back in the 60s. And before that, really, the highest actually recorded figure was about 4,000 um, to an international a few years ago. So we've sort of raised the bar completely and shown what's possible. And I think it probably goes broader than just cricket. I think it's 
probably shown for us, Australia, hopefully Australia and also in other countries, what is achievable for major sporting events for women. And I know that at the moment, Australia is looking at a bid for the FIFA Women's World Cup in Australia. So hopefully the sort of platform set from this event can have broader benefits, not just for cricket, but also women's sport. And our goal was very much to increase the work or sort of build upon the work already done by Cricket Australia, who've done a great job with the WBBL, take it to a next level. And then, you know, the conversations that were heard, and this is not, there's no... Uh, mayo on this that there were honestly several conversations that were overheard by our staff on the way out between dads and daughters going that was amazing like you know I want to be involved that tone of conversation was prevalent of people walking out of that stadium so I think the the legacy is for Cricket Australia now to take on obviously it's been impacted somewhat by the situation now I know that they were actually going to open registrations in April in normal circumstance to try and capitalize on that for um, for young girls but I think the opportunity is there now for them to use that event as a springboard to grow participation uh, for young girls and also from a media point of view, hopefully expand the horizons outside of Elise Perry, Elisa Healy, uh, Meg Lanning, who from my experience at the start of the working on this event were pretty much the only players you'd had to put those players up to really get an outcome in the newspaper. Whereas by the end of the tournament, you know, Megan Shute, Georgia Wareham, you know, could probably list almost their whole playing 11. Ash Gardner, there was a much broader base, which again comes back to that more diverse storytelling. So in terms of what's next, it's going to be a hard act to follow. So yeah, they got the Women's World Cup in New Zealand, which are going to be different events. You know, New Zealand are not going to be striving for 86,000. That doesn't need to be the benchmark for a successful event. But hopefully it's given them some inspiration and other events to say, well, look, you know, if these guys can do this, we can do it. And being able to share with your stakeholders and people that are buying into your event that you can do it um, makes the task a lot more easier. We didn't have that luxury a lot of the time. And thankfully, you know, just we had people that were willing to kind of believe in us without any proof that doing something like this would be possible. Well, just looking at that strategy to uh, to, to fill the G and, and get that uh, proof of concept almost, you know, last week we talked to Tasneem Samakhan and, and she had a few questions questions around uh, the, the use of Katy Perry as the, you know, entertainment act and, and uh, getting eyeballs that way rather than, uh, I guess, more making the players the focus. So, you know, what was the thinking behind that decision to get in Katy Perry and, and how effective do you think it was? And do you think maybe there's uh, some room for a different approach? Yeah, no, I think I've got a quite a strong counter argument to that. Um, <laughs> is that um, Look, I think what we set out to do at the start, the ambition was we are going to make this a major world event in its own right. And that was how can we make this as big as it possibly can be? And we just wrote down what would make this as big as possible. And if it was the Super Bowl, if it was the NRL Grand Final, you don't bat an eyelid if there's a major entertainer that is performing at that event. It just elevates the status of the event. And I think that's exactly what having Katy Perry at the event did. I mean, as an example, on the day that we announced that she was performing, I think we sold about 1,500 tickets that day. So it's not like we sold 60,000 tickets off the back of Katy Perry's coming. I think what it did was elevate the proposition of this final to let everyone know this is a seriously big major event. And it didn't necessarily say come for the entertainment. That was just part of the whole proposition of the day, International Women's Day, MCG, Women's Final, Best Cricketers in the World, 
And we were always cognizant of that in our messaging. We, we always wanted to reference the cricket and make sure that wasn't lost in what we were doing. We never lost sight of that along the way. But I think that whole proposition as a total is what brought that big crowd in. Not if we'd gone in isolation, the Katy Perry, we probably without the cricket and said we're having a Katy Perry concert, we might have sold all the tickets faster in some ways. Um, you just go to those people that are interested in that and that's it. But once I think it was the total offering of that day and our whole story was told, I think that's what made it an attractive proposition for people to come to. I don't think people came just to see Katy Perry. I don't think there's any evidence of that in the ticket purchasing. I think what it allowed us to do is reach audiences that we wouldn't have reached previously. So, for example, we had um, we were able to get articles in different magazines, you know, different sort of fashion magazines, um, Billboard magazine, all these sort of publications that a women's cricket final would never into under normal circumstances. So I think the benefit for cricket and for women's cricket to have to be able to celebrate an event like that is just hugely beneficial and I, I can't really see too much of a downside to that approach really. If we'd gone with just a pure cricket offering, we could have played it at North Sydney Oval, filled it up, had 13,000 and had a nice venue. But I think the legacy and the benefit of that event would have been much lower than doing what we did. I think that the, one of Tasneem's points, I think it'd be remiss of us not to pass it on behalf, was uh, why not get someone like Rihanna that has a connection to cricket rather than Katy Perry. American, zero connection to cricket. USA is a target market, we get that, but why not go for someone like Rihanna with a connection? No, that's fair. And I think um, obviously it's not a case always of just pick who we want and we'll get it. So um, there's that as well. But, you know, Rihanna would have been nice. But I think what we went for in the end was someone who we thought more represented that kind of equality and that um, female empowerment was probably the direction of travel in wanting to get Katie and I think for management she was pretty much the top pick I think because for that reason so I know Rihanna was definitely spoken about and yeah we've almost got to the end but it's time to a little bit lighter you know Bez didn't know I was going to do this to him but I'm I want you two to have a a bit of an impression off um now I know some of your best ones Max so what I'm going to do is Bez is going to be in Smith and he's going to be interviewing you Curtly Ambrose um about the about the art of fast bowling uh, Bez, go. Well, I saw Luke Fletcher bowl in the T20 Super Smash and Jesse Ryder put the ball into the car park. It actually hit my car. It wasn't technically my car. It was a rental. Now, Kirtley, big bustling West Indian fast bowler, probably one of the best fast bowlers by the barest of margins. What's the, what's the, what's the secret to bowling fast and, and, and being intimidating? Well, it was always more about as a fast bowler. Intimidating. Never trying to say too much. Let the batsman know who's boss. So I sure did ruffle a few feathers at the batsman over the years. But for me, it was never about telling them what I was going to do. It was going to do the walk to walk rather than talk to talk because such as you're going to be an intimidating fast bowler. So over the years, I tried to try to always let the batsman know through my actions who was in charge of the situation. So for me personally, I was not really an aggressive person off the field but as soon as I step on the cricket field you know that Curtly he's going to mean business who <laughs> <laughs> would be the voice of associate cricket emerging cricket I'm going to keep correcting myself. Oh, Brian Murgatroyd Andrew Leonard Lenny would be a good shout yeah, I reckon Brian Murgatroyd leading up into the last couple of years but yeah Lenny is everywhere man everywhere crick clubs is Andrew Leonard is so um, um, it is. It'd be great to see in the next few years, and obviously with the more and more tournaments being streamed, if the, the quality of coverage in the emerging cricket world, we might have some some impersonations to make from uh, from those events. Well, Max Abbott, it's been fantastic to have you on the Emerging.
Origin Cricket Podcast. Thank you as well for contributing to the Patreon cause here at EC as well. But great to get your insight in regards to media and communications of global tournaments and, and hope to hear from you very, very soon with some more exciting news about an upcoming World Cup, which will hopefully be run and done in the time frame that, it, that it's supposed to. But yeah, we, we look forward to hearing from you again. Anytime, gents. Been a pleasure. As we said at the top of the pod, don't forget to subscribe to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Share the link with all your cricket-loving friends and leave us a five-star rating and review. If you want to support us financially, go to Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Emerging Cricket, where you can support us from as little as $2 US a month. For now, though, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are around the Emerging Cricket world.